to episode 99 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. In today's uh, episode, we'll be doing essays, yes or no. And in the second half, we'll be doing two Persephone books, The Crowded Street by Winifred Holtby and Brooke Evans by Susan Glasspool, or versus Brooke Evans, I should say. Uh, mm. Not as advertised the episode where Rachel looks at my bookshelves, because we had to postpone that, but that will be happening. Yes, I am going to Simon's. This will happen. It will happen. Um, also, can I just, should I just mention that I, we had, did have some complaints that my sound wasn't very good. So um, Simon very kindly arranged a microphone for me. So if you could let us know if the sound is better, that would be great. It's hopefully 99 episodes in, we finally both have microphones. So Yeah, I was resisting the technology, but here I am. And it's actually very <laughs> sweet, sort of sitting here on its little tripod. Oh, that's nice. It's quite friendly looking, actually. It's like, what's that film, Wally? It's like having Wally <laughs> on my desk. That's nice. <laughs> I like that. Hello. Um, I should say, welcome to new listeners, because we have had quite a few after I was very lucky to appear oh. on an episode of Backlisted. Hello. Um, we're very pleased to have you. I should explain in this podcast, we it's called Tea or Books because we um, debate the difficult decisions of, of reading a book. So we never mention tea, really. No, so if come and we also don't tea. agree over tea because you drink dust. <laughs> well, I've actually changed to Clipper. Does that make any difference? Oh no, that makes all the difference. Okay, good. Yeah. I felt very chastened when you were so so <laughs> horrified at my PG tips. <laughs> um, in fact, my friend Lorna got me a tea advent calendar uh, for oh. my birthday, which I'm excited. Oh, Lorna, who was a podcast guest once. Um, yes, lovely Lorna. Lovely Lorna, we love Lorna. Uh, um, we always start off the episode by discussing what we're reading. What are you reading, Rachel? Well, that is a good question. Um, I've been reading a lot of plays for new listeners. Um, I'm doing a master's degree in playwriting, so um, hence why I'm normally reading plays rather than books these days. <laughs> um, but I just finished reading Brooke Evans for this podcast, obviously, um, which I had read before, but many moons ago. And I'm now almost finished reading Murder Must Advertise by Dorothy L. Sayers, um, which I'm enjoying very much. So it's, you know, I do feel like, come on, I need to just just tell me what's happening now. This is <laughs> But I'm loving the insight into life in a 1930s slash 20s advertising agency. Fascinating. Um, and seeing it as also, I, I felt like reading a murder mystery because I've spent the last week um, largely inside the old Holloway prison, um, oh. being, being part of a um, performance that was taking place there. These are the things I do now. I'm doing a master's degree in theatre, um, which was very interesting, illuminating, depressing. I now want to go away and do more reading about prison and women in prison in particular. But um, I should note that um, th- there was much confusion on my family WhatsApp group <laughs> with with my family thinking that the prison was still open and I was <laughs> um, spending time in there with the prisoners. Um, it has been shut for the last six years, so it's an empty building. Um, At least I didn't think you were one of the prisoners. No, well, I mean, some people in my life wouldn't be surprised if I were, but you know, I won't give any more details. Um, so the um, I, I wanted to read a murder mystery because of that, but I've just bought a book actually yesterday that I'm really excited about reading. Um, I apologise for any Swedish listeners, but the book is is translated from Swedish and it's called Osebol. I don't know if that's how you say it. It's the the name of the of a town, and it's basically it was published in 2019 in Sweden, and it was a, a huge success, won lots of prizes. It's the verbatim um, almost poetical 
account it's an interviews with every single um inhabitant of this small town in sweden called osobol um ranging from the age of 14 to being in their 90s and it's an exploration of social change over the course of a hundred years, listening to people's lives and their experiences. Um, most of the people in the town have only ever lived in the town. Mm. And um, it also was uh, a lumber town with a big mill that obviously is no longer there. So it's also looking at what happens when the main um, reason for a town being there le- it goes and how do people continue to live and to prosper in in a place that's had the heart ripped out of it essentially um so i'm really looking forward to reading it initially i was a bit scared because it's 800 pages long oh, wow. but um it's it is like each page is, is like is a poem essentially so i mean it's not it's not dense text but i'm really excited to read it because um I love stuff like this, social histories and the the writing style is really beautiful. And also it's translated and I want to read more translated stuff. So, um, yeah, that's what I've got. If anyone's interested, um, it's it's just come out in English. So that sounds fascinating. Is that yeah. right? Well, I was going to say it reminds me of Aikenfield by Ronald Blythe, which I haven't actually read. But, yes, <laughs> but it's, I think <laughs> it's sort of, sort of along the same lines. But this one, there's no commentary at all. It's literally just the, exactly what the people have said on the page. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So what about you? What are you reading and how are you? I'm well. I should uh, mention the backlist thing again, actually, because it was yeah. so, so fun to be on there with Alexandra Pringle. I'm assuming everyone who listens to Tea or Books also listens to Backlister. But if not, go and check out the episode on Cassandra at the Wedding by Dorothy Baker. You'll find me there. Um, have you read Cassandra at the Wedding? I have. I, I love that book so much. Um, I was so pleased to be invited on to talk about it. The best portrayal of twins in literature, in my mm. opinion. Wow. Um, are you a fan? Yes, I read it when I lived in New York, so a long time ago, but I remember really enjoying it. Lovely, yeah. So that was really fun. Um, And what I'm doing in November is trying to read uh, a novella a day in November. Oh, gosh. Wow. I I did take the day off for my birthday because I thought, since I was visiting my brother, he probably wouldn't appreciate if I just read a book (laughs) throughout my time with him. Um. But yeah, the novellas in November is something run by um, Rebecca at Bookish Beck and Kathy at 746 Books. Uh, and they encouraging people just to read novellas in general. But I thought, oh, supercharge this challenge and try and read one a day, which so far has been good fun. Today I'm reading The Poor Man by Stella Benson. I really like mm. Stella Benson. She's very quirky and unusual and satirical. And this one is about an Englishman in um, Chicago. No, not Chicago, California. I think he's been to both, maybe, but California, and apparently at some point he's going to go to China. Oh, wow. Um, it's all very, and it's he's sort of this, this wet blanket, and um, she's very witty about it. But I think my the, my favourite one so far is I read a murder mystery by Joanna Cannon um, of Persephone oh, fame, not yes. not the more recent The Trouble with Sheep and Goats Woman, but one slight spelt slightly different who wrote <laughs> in the Land, and the, it's called Murder Included, set in a mansion with paying guests. I really liked that. Oh, that sounds good. Is that um, one of the uh, Dean Street Press books? It actually isn't. I've got it as a green vintage penguin, but ah. it has been certainly available as an ebook now. I think there's also a paperback from a from a sort of reprint publisher I hadn't heard of. But um, it's the first one in the series with this detective, who's Price maybe, mm. uh, who is uh, very uh, verbose and quite unsympathetic. At least I found him unsympathetic. I hope we were meant to. He he goes there. To, he's from he's from London, and he has the idea that anyone who 
lives outside London is a classist yokel. So, well, quite understandable, yeah. <laughs> so yes, he's horrible. He thinks they're all going to be right wing terrible people, and then he goes there, and they're not. Well, some of them are, but most of them aren't. <laughs> so yeah, that was that's for fun. Uh, and I mean, I have I'm trying to read entirely from my shelves for this for this project, and I have plenty. Well, I would expect nothing less. Of course. <laughs> and when I come to visit, I'm going to attempt to, you know, help you cull some books. But <laughs> so you that's claim. So I claim. <laughs> I've actually just got a new bookcase. So there's actually gaps on shelves at the moment. <laughs> so if anything, I need more. Okay. Before we get on to the main topic, I should say uh, next episode, episode 100, we're doing a Q&A. We've had lots of questions in already. Thank you very much. But we've certainly got space for more. So if you've got anything you'd like to ask us about books or life or podcasting or anything at all, send those in to teaorbooks at gmail.com and we will almost certainly include them. Yes. Exciting. I can't believe it's going to be 100 episodes. It's mad, isn't it? I know. I mean, if we if we kept up our fortnightly schedule as initially planned, we'd got there two and a half years ago, I think. But, but here we are. Mainly my fault. <laughs> I did describe myself as recently to someone as a fortnightly podcast that comes out once a month. <laughs> about right we always we sort of aim we always start planning it after about two weeks and then sometimes it takes a lot longer to actually yeah find time we can both do both busy people both busy people yeah Uh, and in the first half we will be doing um essays yes or no we've talked about some essays in the past Uh, we did marilyn robinson's collection when i was a child i read books but we don't think we've ever actually done a topic on essays so um start with you Rachel uh thank you Simon favorite essay collections um well I really love Rebecca Solnit's essays I think she's brilliant um so she's famous for um you know talking about mansplaining and coining that term and um men explain things to me is uh probably her most famous collection of essays but she doesn't just write about um feminism she writes about all sorts of things she's actually just had a new collection of essays just published last week i think which is called orwell's roses and it's about george orwell Hmm. um which i i haven't yet read but i intend on doing so and i really like the way she writes i think she writes very beautifully and very poetically but she also writes very truthfully and thoughtfully and she's an academic and she's um you know she's she wrote a wonderful book about walking as well and about the role of walking um and i i like the fact that with her essays she doesn't tell you things she sort of raises questions and it's it enables you to start having a conversation with yourself about what you think about what she's saying and it kind of Every time I read something by her, it, it takes me off in a million directions and I go off and read loads more stuff. And, and I, I love that kind of call mm. to, to get engaged with what it is that she's thinking about. Do you have a favourite collection by her? Um, well, I'm, my favourite collection is probably Men Explain Things to Me, but I've not read her new one, so I don't know. Maybe that would become my favourite. Mm. I've mm. only read um, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, ah. which I I did enjoy, but I it was one of those ones where... I wish I had read it in a frame of mind where I was able to sort of spend longer with it. And yes. I think I maybe rushed through it a bit. Yeah, she does. You do sort of have to take the time to kind of ponder on and to, you know, go back and reread bits, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you? Who's your favourite essayist? Um, 
Well, I do love A.A. Milne's essays, and he's my favourite in many genres. He he wrote uh, weekly essays for Punch for a period, and they were collected as, as If I May and Once a Week, I think, were the essay collections. And there, there was there seems to have been a vogue for essays in the sort of 10s, 20s, um, where they started the observational essay, and they'd be... You know, you can often see that Emil's just sort of looking around his house and thinking, oh, I'm, I'm right about <laughs> well, that. I've got to write something <laughs> for next week. What can I do? Yeah. Pretty much. And some of them are very openly uh, in that frame of mind. Um, and so there's a few from that period, like J.B. Priestley's essays, Delight. I really enjoy Rose McCauley's Personal Pleasures were a little overwritten, but good fun. And again, they're, they're, those are just, isn't it fun having a bath? Or isn't it funny when dogs are small? Or they sort of, <laughs> those sorts of topics. <laughs> Which, you know, very inconsequential and delightful and enjoy them. But it does seem now there's another vogue for essays. Like, as you say, people like Rebecca Solnit, much more um, thoughtful and clearly researched. And, Mm -hmm. you know, often they seem to start from a specific example of something and then go deeper into the philosophy behind it. Or, yeah, Um, I'm currently reading uh, 41 False Starts by Janet Malcolm. Oh, I love Janet Malcolm. Uh, oh, I adore, I adore Janet Malcolm. I mean, w- would have been terrified to meet her, but wonderful writer. Um, have you read 41 Four Starts? I haven't. So it's, um, it's a collection of essays about writers and artists. So the title collection, 41 False Starts, is 41 beginnings to an essay where she was meeting David Sal, an artist I had not heard of. Do you know David no, Sal? No, I, I can't say I do. I think he, he seems maybe he was like a sort of enfant terrible in, I don't know, the 80s and 90s. Right, um, And he was, there's lots of things about whether his work was pornographic or misogynistic. And it was sort of, he, he referred to himself as quoting from other artists. So a lot of it was just painting things that he'd seen in other paintings or in magazines or anything and collaging them together. That there's something just, yeah. So the way she writes when she's meeting someone, I find so... Um, engaging it's she's often i don't think she's ever deliberately nasty in the sense of being malevolent but she just has absolutely none of the social graces or there's no there's no barrier between what she's thinking and what she says does she she's you know some biographers or particular essays if they're meeting someone will th- clearly think they know they're going to be read by that subject to to malcolm and you might have seen this in her other books she just she writes what she thinks and she gets under the skin so well yeah um the essays where she's writing about people that she doesn't know or people who've died long before she started writing like she writes an essay on the Bloomsbury Groove and uh, one at Edith Wharton and things I, I think they're good but they don't have that same vitality that when when she's present because like like everything Janet Malcolm writes in my opinion it's more about Janet Malcolm than it is about anything else <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I love about her well why not yeah <laughs> which yeah. ones have you, have you read uh, well I've only read actually um sort of a few journalistic pieces and also um her book on Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath oh wonderful work yeah. which is wonderful um but I, I do I would like to read more by her I keep meaning to I think I've probably got a book somewhere of her essays that I haven't got around to um but I, I think it's it's a real it's a really interesting um format the essay and I do agree with you that there's there seems to be a, more of a vogue for it these days but as a sort of jumping off point to talk about more philosophical and, and very well researched um elements of society and um kind of i suppose challenging elements of society but in a kind of bite-sized way where you don't have to tackle an entire non-fiction book on it 
but you've got these kind of linked, connected thoughts, but they're all taking you off in a slightly different direction. So I really enjoyed actually, um, it was, I think it's called No Man's Land. It's by Eula Biss. I was going to mention that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I absolutely loved. I found it in a charity shop and just thought, oh, this looks interesting. I'll, um, and it's a Fitzcarraldo edition and their books are always really good. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, why not? And um, they completely weren't what I expected them to be. And they're very loosely connected, but they're just so thoughtful. And she writes so beautifully and with such a kind of compassion and ability to weave the personal and the political that I I thought this is fantastic and I know know she's just had a new collection of essays published that I've not read yet um that are all about materialism and Mm -hmm. how objects own us essentially um and uh, triggered by her experience of buying her first house and actually finding it a very stress uh, like finding rather than the security that everybody said that she would feel she suddenly found herself being oppressed by the fact that she owned and was responsible for all this stuff and wanted to think about you know that that concept so that's a collection of essays i really really want to read and i really it's also really stayed with me from that notes from no man's land is that first one which i think she started out she was just interested in researching telephone holes and their proliferation at a certain period and then discovered how when she was just looking through newspaper articles about them um how often they were used for lynching black people yeah and then it became about both those things. Just, yeah, and yeah. I just thought, what a what an amazing concept. Because yeah, I thought the same. I read this first essay and, and thought, oh, this is going to be about this. And actually, it was about something else entirely. But also her, her making that connection between telephone poles are used as a way of communication. And the communication that you're making when you're hanging a black person on this pole, what what is that communicating to people? And the concept of communication in general. So she goes from that to this to that, and it all connects. But it's like such a clever, thoughtful, um, thought-provoking way of 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 doing it. I just mm. thought, wow, this this is great, great writing, and um, doesn't feel like hard work at the same time. Because I think sometimes essays can feel like hard work, especially if they are very heavy on the academic content and they're quite factual they can feel like you're sort of, you know, being assaulted by all this knowledge and you've really got to kind of take your time Mm. and concentrate. Whereas those more literary essays that take you on a journey and it's academic and it's thoughtful and it's, you know, uh, intellectual, but at the same time, it's accessible. Um, Yes, we we certainly both struggled with Marilyn Robinson's, didn't we? Yes, absolutely. I couldn't get into those at all because there wasn't any kind of, point of reference that I could make to my own life or you know she was also talking about very obscure historical you know religious um denominations and I don't know anything about these things so I I can't I can't access it and I I think that's it's interesting that you know people love her her novels but you don't really find many people talking about her essays and I I think Mm. that's probably why um whereas you know somebody like you know Rebecca Solnit. She's she's mainly known for her essays. Mm. That's that's a, and it's also become a genre that as a writer you are able to specialise in and mm. extend mm. in, um, in a way that perhaps you weren't in the past. But there are also some great writers at the moment who are doing more discursive and funny essays. Like I've just discovered Fran Leibovitz um, mm. after watching her series on Netflix, which is just brilliant. It's um, done with um, oh what's his name, the director Martin someone. Um, can see his face, can't think of his name. Scorsese. Scorsese, that's it, yeah. 
had a mental blank. <laughs> and she's I picked up her um, Virago have just published because before it wasn't available in the UK, a collection of because she started out as a journalist mm. of, of her journalistic essays. And they are just brilliant um, and so funny, so funny. Um, and they're not necessarily like super researched or anything, but she's writing from experience. And Gloria Steinem does the same thing in a lot of her essays, which I love. Mm. And I remember reading in one of her essays, she was saying about how she was obsessed with doing all this research. And a friend said to her, well, you don't need to research what you already know. Mm-hmm. And that a bit that freedom to write about, you know, your experiences with authority. But she's also written some really wonderful, well-researched essays um particularly you know early on in her career when she was a famous one is about when she became a playboy bunny and uh wrote about the experience oh. but um yeah so i love those sorts of uh audra lord's essays are also fantastic um i have a great collection of hers that's just been published um called your silence will not protect you which is one of her most famous essay titles um mm. talking about race and feminism and the intersectionality of them both and um so, I mean, I read a lot of essays that are feminist based. Um, obviously, that's one of my my mm. main interests. But um, I, Fran Leibovitz, for example, is, is just funny essays largely about, you know, living in New York and how annoyed she is by everybody all the time. <laughs> you know, I feel the pain. Um, and, and that's that's wonderful as well. I think a lot of people think, oh, no, essays are going to be hard work and I don't want to read them because I'm going to have to, you know, it's it's not entertaining. But actually, they, they, they can be. It just depends on who you choose. Yeah, my favourite essay collection I've read this year, in fact, I listened to the audiobook, is The Wreckage of My Presence by Casey Wilson, which, wonderful. I love Casey Wilson anyway. She's an actor who's in my favourite sitcom, Happy Endings, but also various other things. Uh, and the, she t- does tackle some quite deep subjects. Her mum died when she was a teenager, so there's quite a lot about grief. But but um, even in the ones that are about grief, she's such a funny writer and indeed funny narrator. Um I can't recommend those enough. I really love those. And going back to what you were saying about novelists who sometimes write essays, uh, I recently read Barbara Kingsolver's collection of essays oh. uh, called Small Wonder, which was published about 20 years ago. Um, in fact, 2002. So a lot of it is, um, although the, yeah, they were collected from the few years before that, and there's an obvious dividing line of 9-11, because a lot of it is about the impact of 9-11. Um, right. But also a lot of it is about ecology. She, as as readers of her novels will know, mm. she's very interested in ecology and environmentalism. Um, she, I definitely did sense after a while there was a very clear structure of here's an anecdote of my life broadening out to a whole concept. And I guess you know it's a very tried and tested and uh, reliable structure. Yeah. Maybe maybe reading them all together wasn't the best idea, but uh, but um, I did really enjoy them. She again, like like you've been saying, she's very good at combining the personal and the political mm. um, and I think that's something the essay can do really well yeah I think that's interesting what you say about you know finding it sometimes too much if you read them all at once I think essays are built to be dipped in and out of because I've made the mistake sometimes before of wanting to read them one after the other and I think then sometimes it can become a bit much or they all sort of kind of start to blend into the into the next and I actually prefer to sort of read one and put it back on the shelf and then when I feel like it I'll go back and I'll read another one now I, I don't think I would read a, a essay collection the whole way through in one mm, go mm. yeah um have you read any Nora Ephron essays because I, I haven't 
No, I haven't. And I, I want to. I was thinking about her. I was like, she's a she's a big one. I mean, I've read Heartburn, but that's a novel. So I've mm. yeah, I've never read. I know lots of people love her. Um, I, I love her essays, and she's um, that one about her neck or something. Yeah, I feel bad um, about my neck. I feel bad yeah. about my neck. Yeah, I would really like to read that. It's um, a great title. But, yeah, I think she's she's another one who I'd really enjoy. It's interesting actually that ever, I think pretty much everyone I've mentioned is American. I don't um, seem to come no. across many British essay writers, but I um, yes, there must be some. Yeah, there it? must be, but I just I guess I haven't picked them up. So recommendations would be welcome. Because I certainly read a lot of English ones from a long time ago, but uh, I mean, yeah. Evie Lucas was one of the few people who only seemed to write essays. I think he did write a few novels, but he was primarily an essayist. And George Orwell, of course, wrote yes. um, some wonderful essays. Some some bits very funny. I love his essay about making a, the perfect cup of tea. Um, Max Beerbohm wrote lots of essays that I've enjoyed as well. Uh, but yeah, I can't think of any recent ones. Unless, I mean, I really enjoyed, um, enjoyed is maybe the wrong word, um, Emily Pine's collection Notes to Self, but I now can't remember where she's from. Um, a lot of that was about her dad's alcoholism. Oh. Uh, so they, they they were very they was they were in the entirely personal and very hard hitting uh, type of essay, but uh, definitely recommend. I'm just googling her to see where she's from. Emily Pine uh, from Ireland, I think. Ah, there we are. Okay. So not quite British, but closer. <laughs> so <Yes>. uh, <laughs> geographically, at least. Um, yeah. So I mean. I think I know where this is going, but mm. overall, essays, yes or no? Absolutely, yes. I think it's very good to have a balance of, of non-fiction and fiction in your reading. Yes, and I'm surprised we've not done essays before, unless we have done a whole episode of essays yeah. before, in which case we apologise, but no. I don't think we have. But if we don't remember, we can't expect anyone else to. So. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, yes, a very firm yes, and in, increasingly so, and it does seem that's the way publishing is going at the moment as well, which I'm very yes. grateful for. Yeah. Um, so often in this middle section we have a question from a listener I'm saving all the questions for the next episode so I've got a question that I wanted to ask um, I'm interested to know your opinion on because it's a debate I saw going on on Twitter a while ago is what are your thoughts about novels that don't use speech marks oh okay Um, do you know what I'm I'm fine with that as long as it's clear who is speaking Um, and also I'm fine with it if it's done for an artistic reason. I don't like things that are done just to be clever or gimmicks. If there's no speech marks because it fits the narrative and it fits the structure and it's telling, it's it's adding something to the message of the novel, then fantastic, I'm, I'm all for it. If you're just doing it because you want to make some kind of, you know, statement that you're doing something different without you doing something different being relevant to the book that you're writing then i would be more skeptical about it but that's just me being a fussy english teacher (laughs) well interesting because i um i can't think of an example where i wouldn't be annoyed by it and i (laughs) would basically it takes a lot for me to read a novel without speech marks i know that uh books published in on the continent often I mean, their, their, their sort of standard version is not to use speech marks, isn't it? You have dash in, instead. Yes, the French speech marks yeah. are very different, and I'm constantly having to correct those, yes. So that's fine. Um, but but otherwise, I it just really annoys me. Um, I was I was hoping that you would be as petty about it as me, but I was petty <laughs> on my own, because <laughs> I... I just don't understand what it, what it could add to a novel. But well, you say you say that you're okay if it does. What what sort of thing do you think 
Or can you think of an example? You've read a book where it has added something. Um, off the top of my head, I can't think of an example, but I think from an artistic perspective, if you're doing it because you are, are wanting to blend the voices into the narrative in an interesting way, then, you know, that would be fine by me. If you're if you're doing it because uh, the voices are, um, I don't know. So if actually there's a whole passage in um, Cry the Beloved Country. There's a whole chapter where that happens. And it's completely different in style to the rest of the book, but it's completely different in style because it's making a point about racism and the multiplicity of voices in society that are racist. And so by not having speech marks, it becomes less about an individual person saying it and more about this is what society is saying. And I found that really interesting stylistically. Um, so if you're doing it because you want to make a point like that, then I think fantastic. And I, I really like that. And I like the experimentation and I like the way that it makes you stop and think as a reader. Oh, why is this not formatted like that? And what's going on? But um, if it's just done because they want to do something different and it doesn't really seem to me to have a place in the narrative, then it would annoy me. And also it would annoy me if it made it difficult for me to understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. I think as a writer, you have to think, how am I? How am I caring for my reader? How am I leading them through the narrative? And if you're making it more difficult for them than it needs to be, then I think you need to stop and think, well, why am I doing this? Yeah, I see it. Yeah, I no. most recently came across it in Magpie Lane by Lucy Atkins. And it wasn't the whole book. It was just the police interview sections. Um, but that was just one of a litany of reasons. I thought that book wasn't very good. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, we did it for my book club and it was quite fun because nobody liked it and we could all just tear her apart. Uh, right on to the final section which was promised a few months ago so um, some oh, of you might have it. been uh, <laughs> I wasn't meant to be. I mean either one of us could have been the reason we didn't well, do it we know who's September. Who, I'm sorry I've been very busy <laughs> very in demand yeah. um, but we have done it now yes. um, would you like to introduce us to uh, Brooke Evans yes I would um, so Brooke Evans is by Susan Glassball who and is actually one of the very earliest um Stephanie books and she uh Susan Graspel wrote the novel in the 20s she is also she's mainly known for being a playwright actually but um in her later life she returned to novel writing and Brooke Evans is about uh it's a multi-generational uh novel so it's in three distinct parts and you kind of follow through with different generations of of the family so we start off the story with Naomi who's living um, in Illinois in the countryside in the 1880s and she is in love with her next door neighbor um, but he is uh, there's for reasons uh, not always entirely explained but the families don't quite like each other they're not considered good enough for each other or something um, and so they're not allowed to be together his mother disapproves of her uh, nonetheless she's a teenager nonetheless they um, they they do spend time together and they have sex before marriage and um i'm not spoiling the plot because this happens all within the first few pages um she becomes pregnant um she doesn't realize at the time but the the same night uh well maybe the day after they've had sex for the first time um he's joe the the boy she's in love with is killed in an accident on the farm and unknowingly to her she's pregnant she only realizes a few months later and um she's forcibly married off to uh, a member of the church um who has agreed that he'll take her to Colorado with him and um you know he'll take on the child and they'll they'll pretend that it was it's both of theirs and she obviously 
resents that and then we so we see that story happen and then the novel moves on to look at goes fast forwards in time 18 years and then we're in the life of her daughter Brooke which is why the novel's called Brooke Evans um and the book is mainly about Brooke but it's the legacy of Naomi and what they've done and the complexities between the two women and their attitude towards love um and how they come to understand how Brooke comes to understand her mother um is is the main thrust of the story that's very mangled sorry it's not easy to describe actually because it's quite it jumps all over the place. Yeah, um, and The Crowded Street by Winfred Holtby was published in the 20s, um, although set in the sort of 30 years leading up to then. Uh, so a similar sort of time period. Uh, it's actually quite similar to Thank Heaven Fasting by E.M. Delafield that we did um, a few episodes ago, in that a lot of it is about this young girl, Muriel. We, we first hear her at 11 at a party, and she's very shy um, and um, doesn't know how to ingratiate herself well in society. And that sort of continues when later we see her at her coming out ball or um, becoming a debutante. And then we see her on the marriage market. And in um, in the same way, in Thank Heaven Fasting, that the opportunities slowly fall away as, um, as people around her are getting married. Everyone's got their eye on Godfrey. Imagine a, gener- a period <laughs> in which the name Godfrey could belong to a heartthrob. Um, <laughs> Uh, he also doesn't get married for, for a while, but uh, but um, she doesn't feel she could possibly be in his league, and so she sets her sights a bit lower. That also doesn't really work out. Um, her sister Connie um, is much more independent and feisty, and goes off to be a land girl. But there, um, well, her fate's not that different to Naomi's. Uh, so yeah, it's a very it's quite a long uh, novel, and it's. Um, gets more and more sort of hopeless as we we face the or mural faces the prospect of what will happen if she doesn't manage to get married in a in a world where that is the more or less the only value that people give to women of her class yes some would say that has not changed much Oh, yes, at least yeah. she's, at least you can get a job now if I you're know, married, exactly. I guess. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all right on that but, yeah. uh, so when did you first read these authors slash books well, I mean, many years ago, I think these were amongst the first um, I read when I first came to know about Persephone books. And Brooke Evans, I remember finding very powerful uh, when I first read it. I didn't have the same response the second time round, actually, which was quite interesting. Um, I remember the first time I read it being really moved by it. I mean, I was much younger than I am now um, and less cynical, obviously. Um <laughs> But it's it's interesting because I, I do remember thinking, gosh, this is this is a phenomenal novel. I'm, I think this is brilliant. And this time around, I enjoyed it, but I found it much more. Um, what's the word I would use? I suppose of its time, it it mm-hmm. feels very. It, to me, it felt a little bit not hysterical because I don't like that word, but it felt a little bit. I don't know, overwrought. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, I think its exploration, I think its strength as a novel is not in its exploration of love and what love means. Um, but I think it's it's actually in the thing that moved me the most on this second reading 
was Brooke's realisation of how much she hadn't understood her mother. And when she's been through the same experience her mother went through and she can see it from the other side, she understands exactly what her mother was trying to do. And the grief that she feels because her mother's dead, she can't communicate to her. I'm sorry I was so awful to you. I'm sorry I didn't understand. I'm sorry about what I did. Um, and and that kind of that diff as you know, knowing that as you get older, you gain the experience you didn't have when you were younger, and you're able to see your parents from an adult perspective, but they're not always there for you to to be able to turn around and say, "God, I was awful, and I didn't see what you mm-hmm. were trying to communicate to me." And I, I think that generational um, divide and the arrogance of young people in thinking that they know better than their parents or they've got nothing to learn from their parents is really powerfully drawn. Um, and I think that's the real, the real strength and insight of the book. Yeah. So I just read it for the first time this, for this podcast for a couple of months ago. I had read Fidelity, the other one that Persephone published, yes. um, I know, 10 years ago. So I remember liking it a lot, but I don't remember much about it. Uh, and I actually was bowled away by Brooke Evans this time. I thought it was really brilliant, but perhaps not for the reasons you did when when you were in your you know early twenties or whatever yeah. it was, because I don't, yeah, I mean I don't want to speak for you, for you then, but the love story didn't do anything for me because partly because we meet Joe for yeah. four pages or something, yeah, yeah. and we don't know anything about him. Uh, and obviously someone just having a character telling you how how wonderful he is and how much he loves him doesn't really convince us that he's that lovable. Uh, which didn't bother me, but if, if you're sort of hitching more of your wagon onto, onto the love story, uh, you'd need to be more convinced there. Yeah. Um, and certainly it persists with her. The reason she calls her daughter Brooke is because uh, they used to meet by the brook and that brook means a lot to her. But yeah, similarly to you, I found its themes of sacrifice and loyalty um, and uh, repentance and all the, all these sorts of things really powerful. And I thought it was a really um, moving and detailed portrayal of a, of what happens with an unhappy marriage. Yes, to, you know, and you often, you know you often get the hasty weddings in novels of this period, often because the people who marry are having the baby <laughs> yeah. you know but uh in this case not um and sometimes that's the end of the story or you know they're sent off somewhere else and here is much more sort of relentless painstaking portrayal of this they never grew to love each other or rather yeah. she never grew to love him they never grew to understand each other more to the point uh and that sense of dislocation she feels of having to live somewhere far from the place that she loves yes was, yeah was i thought really well handled um yeah, I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? That sense of Naomi as a character and Caleb as a character and the idea of the sacrifice that Caleb has made. And Naomi, her complete inability to see things from his perspective and their complete inability to communicate with one another is, for me, it, it was actually quite heartbreaking to read and I, I found myself resenting Naomi because I just thought, you know, exactly. You knew this other bloke for like, you know, a couple of months and, you know, as a lover. And it's you're you're kind of she decided to make I felt felt like she'd made Caleb the man she marries um, the the full guy, basically, for all of the bad stuff in her life. 
and she chose to blame him basically for all of the feelings that she, that she had and in the same time she idolizes joe to the point where you know nobody can ever be as good as, as he was but the reality is she never got to see him as a husband she never got to see what he would be like as a man she had no idea of knowing that but she chooses to live in this fantasy that everything would have been better if only he had stayed alive rather than trying to make the best of the life that she does have and i think that complete waste of her own life due to her inability to move forward and to accept what she has and to see the good in caleb um for me I thought, you know, that's a really interesting portrayal of of a woman and of a person who is completely unable to um, to have any compassion for anyone else other than herself. I think she's a very selfish person. And the legacy of that, I think, it's so interesting seeing it, as you say, play out over the next generations yeah. and how she treats her daughter. And when the secret comes out that, that Brooke isn't biologically Caleb's, uh, the way that happens is really interesting. So I think... Um, I think she's taken this quite sensational topic and treated it really psychologically interestingly. And like, yeah, the things that are overwrought are the ba- as you said, uh, like are the basis of Unami's lasting love for this man that she barely knew. Uh, and I guess Glassville's taken that um, slightly irrational response uh, and then seen what would what would happen to to her and to those around her if that were the bedrock of of your psychology. Yes. Yeah. I think that's. That's a very good way of looking at it. I think there's also that wonderful moment of realisation as well when she she tells her that Caleb's not her father and she gets the photo out and she mm. sees through Brooke's eyes this photo of somebody who looks old-fashioned, who's, the mm. photo's gone brown, he doesn't look particularly good looking to her. He just looks like some weird like old fashioned, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, person in dressing up clothes. And in that moment, it's, it's like she realizes that she can't communicate to anybody how she feels. And to, to her daughter, her, she's just some dried up old lady. Who, and she, at the age of 38, I might add, yeah. um, <laughs> who, um, you know, can't possibly have have really experienced love. Um, And I I thought that was such a a beautifully observed moment with that photograph, thinking, you know, how in your head you're always going to be 17 and you see yourself in that way. And then when you see someone else looking at you from the perspective of who you are now, um, it's really interesting. So, I mean, my parents always say that, like my parents have been together since they were, you know, 15 and you know they're in their late 60s now and but when they see each other they don't see each other as being in their 60s they see each other as they always were to each other you know and you don't grow old with to somebody that you you love I guess or that you're very familiar with and this first glimpse she's had of showing this photo to someone who never knew him and seeing him through their eyes as being someone totally a non-entity is is just so interesting that I just found that such a well well observed and well written moment um and it's it's also interesting as well that the last section of the novel where Brooke is 38 she's the same age as her mother as when her mother told her about her father not being hers and again she acts as if she's you know ancient I just I love that it's so sad in the 1920s you were considered to be like you know that's it 38 you're past it love no more life for you not expected to want to have a sex life anymore or anything like that and her 
realizing she's widowed by this point and her having this new engagement with with love and that being a connection to her mother and realizing oh my god we're the same age you know mm. how she was feeling then is how I'm feeling now but when she was 17 looking at her mother at 38 to her she was just like this old lady and it was embarrassing that her mother was talking about love mm, yeah, yeah and now she has to go through the same process with her own son um and yeah, I just love that the that that kind of the cyclical nature of it and the echoes I mean obviously it's it's contrived because you know they're exactly the same age and the same things are happening to them but it's um it's also a story about modernity i suppose isn't it and how attitudes change if you think the the choices that brooke has are completely different to the choices that her mother has um and she's able to to make a choice that her mother was never able to make um and how naomi's life could have been different if she had been able to make you know if she didn't have to have to marry caleb if she could have done what she wanted you know that's what brooke is doing yeah uh, let's talk about uh the crowded street um yes. sorry yeah no no no. it's great uh because i mean similarly the lack of choice is is very central to uh the plot isn't it the, what the options available to women both romantically and professionally absolutely and i think one of the reasons why the crowded street isn't a book i've reread is because i found it so hard to read mm. um and like you say it, it gets increasingly depressing <laughs> and it doesn't offer a happy ending or a magical solution because there isn't one. And I think that's, and it's interesting you mentioned how similar it was to Thank Heaven Fasting Mm. because um, that's very similar in the sense that we get our happy ending, but is it a happy ending? And and we won't spoil precisely what happens at the end of The Crowded Street, but it is, uh, yeah, it's an unusual twist on the sort of fairy tale, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, what did sorry. you think of it? Um, so it's the first novel I've read by Winifred Holby, uh, somehow. I've read some of her non-fiction in the past. Uh, but yeah, I've had, and I've had her novels for a long time. I think I got this novel about 12 years ago. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting. I think if I'd read it for the first time before, I'd read a lot of novels like it that mm. I'd have thought this is wonderful. But but it treads, it does tread so many of the so like that well-worn path of novels set in this period mm. of the upper middle class uh, girl who um, isn't the belle of the ball and doesn't doesn't have options and gets yeah I mean it's so similar to Thank Heaven Fasting it's so similar to Alas Poor Lady by Rachel mm. Ferguson by all sorts of novels of this, of this sort um, that I did find uh, it didn't really stand out to, to me from the others I mean, Holby's writing's good but it didn't seem or not very good but it didn't seem to me distinct i don't mm. know if you'd agree with that um uh, i did like the theme of godfrey sort of flitting in and out of her life and each time she sees him the way it's her life has changed a bit her perspective of him has changed a bit and it's like it, in fact in some ways it's a bit like what would happen to naomi if she kept seeing joe at different mm. stages if he'd, if he'd lived yeah. and they hadn't stayed together uh, what happens when the sort of matinee idol type is also older and you're no longer, you know, 18 or whatever she is at the beginning. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, so did you, when did you read it? I read it many years ago um, and I read it, it was my first Winifred Holtby at the time. I've since read um, her other novels. Um, and I think that she is a fantastic writer. I think Sal's writing is, is an absolute 
you know, tour de force of a novel. And I would highly recommend anybody to read it. It's long and it's about politics, which initially makes you think, what? But actually, <laughs> once you get into it, it's fantastic. It's much like National Provincial by Lettuce Cooper. Um, but it's I, I completely agree with you in that it's it's a novel of its time <clears throat> and it's covering the ground many other writers were covering at the time. And I think perhaps more successfully in a novelistic form, because, you know, she's I think it's it, it, it seemed to me like it was quite autobiographical as a novel. And there's lots in here. You know, we see World War One. We see, you know, the people going off and, and having opportunities to do different things. We see all of those things happening. And um we see the difficulties of her not having many choices and her getting angry about it and being like, why can't I do something different? Blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, okay, that's great. But what else are you offering me? Um, And I mean, I liked Muriel as a character and I felt sorry for her and I felt angry on her behalf, but I felt like, I guess I didn't feel like there was a huge amount of development of her character. Yeah. And it is very long. Like, I mean, it's not, 800 pages long but it but for the for what happens it is very long and there's a lot of i mean it does re- in that way represent sort of her feelings of stasis and not yeah. developing i guess but that's not always the most fun thing to read about no exactly and I, I think if you're wanting to write a novel about this you you have to offer your readership something at the end to be like okay well you know, this this is an alternative or this is what you could, could do. I think you can be a bit utopian about it. And I, I think, you know, obviously she wanted to write something that was realistic and I, that's great. But ultimately, if you're not offering a solution, I mean, especially if she's writing this in the 20s, you know, what many women reading this would have been in the same situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are you saying about what we can do as a society? What are you offering rather than complaining about it? What are you offering? And that's why I did enjoy Connie as a character, um, who maybe is based on Vera Britain. Not sure. Yes, um, she was. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and she seems to have. I mean, she does have more vitality as a as a character in the novel, but I think also reading it, she comes off the page more and is more alive. And mm. her her decision to go and be a land girl and then to get to get pregnant. Um, to, sorry for spoiler, but uh, and how she deals with that. Um. I thought was sort of pushing the boundaries of what a woman in her class might have done at that period and seeing what the consequences of it were. And I think that is really, yeah, that is really interesting. Although again, as you say, not unique to this novel, but novel by any means. No, I think it's, you know, it's a really interesting social portrait and from a historical perspective, I think it's, it's very much worth reading and it's well written. I mean, Winifred Ruff is a good, was a good writer and I, I, I didn't, I didn't not enjoy it. I just felt, it felt a bit trudge, you know, trudging through, you know, getting through the sludge, you know. You yeah, I'd be hard pressed to see ascendance and think, yes, Holby wrote that, as a, in the way that Susan Glasswell I thought was quite distinct, right? And I yes. Would have wrote, um, and and uh, this being so similar to Thank Heaven Fasting that I'd read previously, and E.M. Delafield being such a distinctive writer, this yeah. this felt to me like a novelist in the 20s yeah <laughs> so, it doesn't yeah. sparkle whereas i think south riding is very different and i would okay. recommend yeah that is a really brilliant novel and i think the problem with the crowded street is i, I think perhaps it's too personal okay and i think that's why it doesn't sing and it doesn't come off the page 
I think it's very much somebody writing about all the things that have annoyed them. And it's interesting. I think being so personal, if it had been the first person and we've got Muriel's mm-hmm. voice throughout, yeah. I think I would have it needed a voice. enjoyed it more. Yeah. yeah, it needed a voice. And I think that's ultimately for me, Muriel is quite a flat character. And so I didn't feel excited. And it's interesting. I mean, I kept the book, which is rare for me because I don't often. You love to get rid of books. Yeah. Um, So I obviously kept it because I thought it was interesting. But I I remember little about it. I didn't have time to reread it for this. And there's nothing. Whereas South Riding, I I still remember in quite vivid detail. And, um, you know, it stayed with me. Whereas this didn't really stay with me I think like you say because I've read so many other books like it that I've preferred so thank heaven fasting for me personally is like the best book of of that genre mm-hmm. well maybe we'll do South Riding some point in the future. yeah I think we should I mean it's a long one it's a commitment but mm. it's it's really worth it and there's a tv series if you can't be bothered <laughs> scandal <laughs> just saying well tea or books decision making I think again not going to be super difficult to discern that I will be picking Brooke Evans of the two. Yes. I mean, I, I don't think either of them are perfect novels and I wouldn't say either of them are books that are my absolute favourites, but if I were pressed to choose, I would go with Brooke Evans. I think Fidelity is a better novel than Brooke Evans. Interesting. I think I prefer Brooke Evans to Fidelity. Oh, interesting. Mm. So, great. We, As I said, we haven't decided what we're reading for the next episode where we do books but that will probably be not for a while because we've got um our q a next episode and then hopefully we will do that episode of rachel looking at my bookshelves for the episode 101 rachel looking at your bookshelves and throwing things away Mm-mm-mm. you are leaving the house <laughs> you'll be frisked at the door and you... <laughs> i'm gonna start tagging them all like when i went to the library or set off an alarm if you try and take them out <laughs> Uh, that'll be fun thanks so much for listening and again thank you for joining us if you are a new listener thank you everyone bye bye bye